Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is part one of episode 100. I'm delighted to say this episode is with two quality practitioners, Tom Allen and Matt Tabernet. And I really appreciate the lads coming on to the podcast. Um, It took a lot of consideration on who to get on for episode 100. I wanted someone on the podcast that um, obviously gave gives great information, but at the same time fits within our philosophies at Football Fitness Federation. And Tom and Matt, I think, pretty much define that. Um, They have their egos in check. They're always willing to learn, really open with the discussions. And I'm sure you're going to take absolutely loads from this one. I think you can tell by the length of our chat. I think we went over an hour and a half altogether, and that's why I've split it into two parts. That There's so much information in this, but... The way the lads operate, obviously their knowledge is second to none, but the the way they operate and go about themselves is absolutely quality. They're open to speak to different people, have different conversations, and that for me is the way that we should all work. That that for me is how um, the practice in our industry will move forward to have these open and honest conversations. So huge thank you to the lads for coming on. We covered loads on this one, but I'll just try and um, give a idea about some of the topics that we did cover. We spoke about their um, focuses on research, so recent research that they've done, but also future research that they're look, looking to do as well. Um, and that is tied in with both Matt's doctorate and Tom's as well. We spoke about uh, maximizing football fitness throughout a busy season. And touching into that, we went into some aspects of periodization, their thoughts on periodization, and then in terms of the season as well, what factors throughout a season need to be most flexible um, for that periodization model to work. We spoke about the off-season period, the pre-season period, loads of considerations in those times. Um, We also talked about, the, the lads got onto answering some questions from our community members, and one of those was based around Uh, introducing scholars to full-time programs so the the transition we touched on the transition from under 16 to under under 18 and then on to first team as well so we covered absolutely loads in this now the part one of this episode mainly focuses around the research that the lads have been doing and pre-season off-season and maximizing football fitness so that is part one that is this episode and then part two of episode 100 will be released on Wednesday this week and that goes into all the other areas that I've just touched on there so please give it a share like I say I think there's loads in this one I'm really excited to get this one out there Um, really would appreciate it if you could share it far and wide and um, yeah huge thank you again to the lads for coming on I just wanted to give, because I'm not going to interrupt this episode in between with the usual community updates. I'm just going to give a quick update on our online community. So I've literally just uploaded an awesome new webinar, another quality new webinar from Mark Armitage. Um, He's currently a lecturer at the University of Suffolk but previously worked at loads of top clubs, including Southampton, Arsenal, Norwich, um, Huddersfield Town. And Mark has done a webinar for us on developing a field-based rehabilitation philosophy. And it's actually perfect timing because it it links in so well with this podcast. It's like we planned it, even though we didn't. Um, And he covers loads of different information so he talks on his reflections on his time in in the professional game 
He talks about the work he's currently doing in his private practice. He talks about his rehab progressions and gives rationales for those as well. And he also talks about, he highlights areas of future development and research too. Um, But like I said, there's loads of things in that webinar that links in with topics and conversations that we had in this podcast as well. So really, really good timing. But that is available to go and check out on our online community. So if you're not a member, you can go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab at the top. If you sign up there, you will get one month free on the community to check out webinars just like Mark's, but there's loads of other webinars on there as well as our, as 10 of our network meeting presentations that are all available on the community. Um, after that free month, it is only £4.99 per month, and then you do get access to our interactive WhatsApp group as well. So go and check it out, um, footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there, and that will give you access to the free month. And you can go and check Mark's webinar out as well as all the others on there. So again, big thank you to listening to the podcast and huge thank you to all the guests and everyone that has listened in the previous 99 episodes. And I'm delighted to bring you episode 100, part one of episode 100 with Tom Allen and Matt Taberner. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 100. I'm joined today by two guests, two guests that I probably blagged so much to come on, that they've got sick of it and finally agreed. So Tom Allen, Matt Taberner, lads, thank you very much for coming on. No, thank you for having us. No worries, yeah. Happy said, to uh, come on and uh, give you that. We should have the champagne now, actually, since the 100 appearance. I was going to put some balloons <laughs> up behind <laughs> me and stuff. I've got a bottle of champagne and it just slides in and comes into your video slot in the side. <laughs> <laughs> Wasted that. You could have come up with that idea beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said, I said on text the other day, I had to get someone on the podcast for episode 100 that I knew could deliver. So I was trying to think of the football analogy and I've gone for Solskjaer and Sheringham. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they couldn't do it, so you got us to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it, that's it. No, but big thanks for coming on, lads. Really appreciate it and giving up your time. Your missus must not be uh, very happy right now taking away your Saturday nights, but uh, really appreciate you coming on. I'm sure people, a lot of the listeners know about yourselves and the clubs you've been at or you're currently at. Um, but start with Tom. Do you want to just take us through uh, education, career? We'll get all that stuff done, and then we can can move on to uh, tabs after. Yeah, no. Um, so I went to University of Birmingham. I uh, did three years there, and then my thesis was on coaching, um, like how your coaching style would affect uh, kids. Um, so was it a certain type of style made kids uh, more active and it turned out to be that you give them autonomy, they're, um, they're better. Um, I did that. And then once that had finished, I was looking for a job. So I sent out the usual emails to your Birmingham city walls, so everyone around the Midlands area. And then just by chance, Villa were looking for an intern at the time. Uh, so I went in there the year after I finished uh, as an intern met Tabsy. Tabsy was um, the head of the academy there uh, doing all sorts uh, from, I believe it was the under nines upwards. Um, So yeah, met Tabsy there, uh, spent six years. So after my internship, became the sports scientist, then went through 
well, I think it was 10 managers, I think, and that's including caretakers and stuff. So learned how to adapt a lot, uh, saw a lot of different ideas and uh, how different things affect uh, different people uh, and the outcomes of various um, various things. And yeah, it's, uh, it was a, a, a very interesting time. Uh, I, I do think maybe at Villa was probably the best place to learn. Um, like honestly, I learned so much uh, at that place. It was uh, incredible. Uh, and then the year we got relegated, uh, a lot of changes were made in the club. Uh, and then became lead sports scientist. Spent uh, a year and a half doing that. Uh, and then out of the blue, just planning to go on a, a, a pre-season with Villa. Had a phone call from Darren Burgess saying uh, that there was going to be a role coming up uh, as a lead sports scientist at Arsenal. There's a six or seven people that are going to be going for it. Would I be interested in, in putting my name forward? And of course, I'd like to work with people like Darren, Shad, Colin Lewin. Um, you, you've got to take a, uh, the opportunity to do that. So I put my name forward, met um, Shad and Darren uh, and Arsene Wenger on the, on the day. Um, chatted to them said this is how I would run it and this is what I'd do flew back to Portugal to uh, come with pre-season and then the next day said oh, would you be willing to start the day after and then had to try and speak to Steve Bruce about how, how I could get back in and start working at Arsenal so yeah it was uh, quite a busy time then and then now I'm in my third season uh, just finished my third season at Arsenal um, had an incredible experience here. Um, it's I've learned a lot from people within the club and then also those from outside it. And at Arsenal, we've had the opportunity to get different um, practitioners in. Obviously, you've got the Arsenal Performance and Research Team. Uh, so you get all the top people in top um, top areas of, the, of their working environments. So whether that's um, Shona Halson from Recovery and Sleep, um, or Stu McMillan talking about running mechanics, you get exposed to all these kind of different people. Um, and I'd say that's uh, given us a, a lot to learn and, and apply into the way we work. Um, and then obviously I've been working closely with Tabsy on his, uh, on his doctorate um, and trying to help in the research space as well. We definitely should have had some champagne going on, shouldn't we? We've got <laughs> yeah. FA Cup champion, 100 oh, episode, and doctorate. Come on. <laughs> I know. In your house tonight. <laughs> He's been sleeping with it, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Just before we go into you, Matt, because I know this will sort of cross over into, into yourself as well. Tom, you mentioned there about uh, being at Villa and it being <clears> the, um, I can't remember the phrase you used, but basically the, the best chance to advance or progress as a practice yeah. you know why was that do you think just because you have to learn to adapt so you you're dealing with different people um so every year we'd have someone different in um different methodologies and uh it's understanding that different people want different things done certain ways but overall there's this the same commonality that basically they want every player to be fit they want every player to be available um it's just how it's done is different. Um, and like you get exposed in that environment, you get exposed a lot, you get questioned a lot. Um, when you're under pressure, you're always questioned uh, 
is this idea a good idea? Why should we be doing this over this? Or I've seen this and you get put under pressure and you need those kind of moments under pressure to, to really um, blossom in your career and really test yourself. Um, like there you constantly uh, try and improve and because you we were short staffed as well, it's, you learn to do everything. Yeah. Um, so like when I first came in, in a villa, it was uh, myself, Tabs and uh, another fitness coach who were the only people in the sports science team. Um, so there's three of us trying to do from under nines to the first team, um, trying to get as much as we can. Then you learn uh, what's the important things to look for. Um, what's the, the fluffy stuff that if, if you can't do it, don't worry about it. Um, and it's just trying to find that foundational elements that are going to really affect the players and hopefully get you, uh, get you three points at the end of the day. I think I think the, one of the important things you echoed there, Tom, before you were, uh, when you work at that level, like the most important key performance indicator is player availability. Yeah. Like you can talk about improving fitness and all these things, but in in the demanding environment of multiple game schedules, uh, etc., and huge variability that exists week to week, it's just to make sure can you make the key players available and is it often available for the manager to select his best team. Yeah. Some of Chris Carlin's research papers from like a few years ago will show that and highlight that. But yeah, I think if you speak to anyone at the, that sort of level, they'll highlight that as probably their number one KPI. But then I'd also include, right? So you're saying keep them available, but they have to be available to do the job that the manager wants them to do. That's the key one. They have to be able to do that role because if, if they're available but can't do that role, you're going to get hammered for it. Which then becomes down to balancing fitness and fatigue, doesn't it? Oh, there's so many ways we could go off on this now. Yeah. I think, I think that they're some top topics because we can expand on those in a little bit as well because some of the stuff that we've got to go into, I think there's some great stuff there. But just before we do, before we skip you, Matt, let's go through... Um... Yeah, you can skip me, we'll go on. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've been pretty busy, mate, so we need to get some of this in. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so my journey sort of started... Uh, I did a... Um, BSc Sport and Exercise Science at University of Northampton, which I started in 2003, uh, three years, finished that in 2006, got a first class honours, then went on to uh, Loughborough University to do an MSc in Sport and Exercise Nutrition. Uh, part of my, my uh, MSc thesis was studying hydration status in elite female footballers and elite male footballers, so a comparison between sexes, which was done with the Ipswich Town men's squad when they came to campus, and then we travelled down to uh, Watford's training ground at the time to do the... Uh, under 21s women's England team and looking at uh, differences. And that sort of got me sort of that experience uh, prior to obviously getting the, the position at Aston Villa. So obviously like Tom did back in the day, I, I wrote loads of letters out prior to finishing my master's, uh, which would have been yeah, summer of 2007. Uh, and lucky enough at the time, Villa had just opened the new training going body more Heath, um, which is still a tremendous facility today. Um, and yeah, I was given an opportunity to come in and help work with obviously the predominantly working between, between the nines and sixteens to start with. Uh, but then I was in during the day helping out with the first team, obviously during pre-season, et cetera, doing the normal tasks and getting that daily involvement, just being thrown in the deep end and learning and challenging myself to work with players. Like I remember the first day I was brought in going, oh, I'll go and do the work warm-up with the first team players and talking with players like Dan Petroff, Ash Young, James Milner, Gareth Barry and being thrown in the deep end like that teaches like you you learn on your feet in this environment and that was probably like one of the first like learning points I had um 
Yeah, and then obviously looking at putting the infrastructure in place in the academy. This is before the elite player performance plan came into place. Um, and then I became lead academy sports scientist in then. 2009, um, which obviously I was in that role for till 2013. Uh, but linking again, in like Tom said, like literally, like would help out with any group. It was a first team. One of the physios needed help rehabbing one of the first team players. I would help out if it was a 21s. I would help out. But my predominant working role would be working with the reserve group now, as it, it would be for the, the 23s. And then, uh, obviously, I was in that role for six years and worked at Villa for six years. Got to know Tom at the back end and we've stayed in contact ever since. Um, and then I finished, obviously, did my NSCA, CSCS in 2007. Uh, did my FA Fitness Trainers Award and British Weightlifting Accreditation at the back end of that as well, which obviously no longer exists, which is probably one of the best postgraduate courses I've ever done, I would say. And I'm still like struggling to understand that why it doesn't exist now because I think it would help a lot of practitioners practically apply the science um, and then 2013 I got a, a sort of call to go would it be interesting in a role at Everton to work with a, with Steve Tashin uh, as assistant first team sports scientist which obviously to move up and predominantly work with the first team role and obviously then challenge myself in another first team environment and in another club because uh, I think doing it in one club is one thing but then going to another club and be accepted by another group of staff another group of people is really important um, so I was in that role and obviously Roberto Martinez just had just joined Everton at the time. And the first year, yeah, we, we had a tremendous first season. We finished, finished fourth in the league, uh, qualified for Europe, which obviously brought its own challenges when you had a small squad in the second year. Steve obviously then knowingly brought me to, knowing that he was going to leave pretty much at the end of that season, brought me to Everton to sort of take up the role of head of sports science, which I was in for... Uh, three three seasons, nearly four years, and worked obviously under Roberto, under Ronald Koeman. Um, and then in 2017, I moved into the role of head of rehabilitation, um, taking on still on the responsibility of like, managing the, the gym and so forth and those sort of things and driving process through the club. Um, but I'd always involved in rehab and so forth. And uh, yeah, that's one of my areas and that I'm very, very passionate about improving in terms of sport processes and elite football players, which obviously led me into my doctorate research, which has obviously been quite well publicised, I guess, as so forth. Uh, been extremely like grateful for the reception that uh, the publications have had of like applying science in a, in a highly pressurised environment. And Tom's been a, been a part of that, help uh, get me through that journey that, I've, well, I've literally completed in 2.2 years. Um, and obviously, in, I left Everton in 2019. We'll go into details regarding that. But I thought, obviously, I worked nearly 12 and a half years full time in football, and it was a great opportunity to obviously take a little bit of a reflection time. And since then, I obviously finished my doctorate, which I've had six publications from, uh, been nominated for the BGSM PhD Academy Awards, which will hopefully go to vote in the next couple of weeks. Um, continuing to research. We work on some research with obviously Tom and other people in the field in different areas, um, which I've been privileged to meet in part of my, my traveling in the last year where I've been going into Paris Saint-Germain, the Dutch Football Federation, FC Copenhagen, um, presented the FIFA Medical Conference and I'll be doing that again next year. Um, yeah, and just and obviously just completed my um, BASIS HPSA accreditation and currently the first person in the country to hold dual status in football science and rehabilitation. 
Um, so that's yeah, it's really my sort of my background of pretty much working 13 years in, in elite football. And that's why we couldn't skip it. <laughs> so what I was going to ask at this point was where both of your focuses are next, but I think it would only be right just to expand at this point on some of the research that you guys have done together. Um, so it's up to you where you want to start on that. Like I'll, I'll pass that over to you guys, but I think it'd be great to expand on that. And then after that, we'll go into like where, you're, where you sort of focus next. Mm. Go start, yeah, you start, that's... yeah, so I've I obviously uh, been quite involved in rehab all the way through my career when I started at Villa with the younger players and for the reserves and working with some first-team players. And when I went into Everton, I transferred through that and then I... I'd sort of developed this sort of process of working in rehab, which obviously was embedded with some of the, the sports technology involved over time and linking in with the, the different sports medical fields. And obviously uh, that sort of led me to the root of, obviously when I started my professional doctorate is obviously I was using this process that evolved over time. And I first presented the sort of the notion of control to chaos at the sports, that sports conference at Wembley in, I think it was 2014. Um, and then I thought, you know what, a great way of sort of, my doctorate research and what I want to prove is sort of conceptualizing that and formalizing it. And then obviously challenging in the elite environment is where well, you can't just apply the same process to every injured player. And it's sometimes hard to do like case control studies in elite athletes. So was to go use this framework and apply it to a series of case, case scenarios. So obviously went with a typical injury, a rare injury and a severe injury, which obviously the framework was published um, using video data, obviously to give it a sort of a, wider appeal to people given the realization what this sort of concept of control chaos actually looks like because it's not just about the quantitative side of load but it's the qualitative side of load that we're trying to get across as well but we'll probably go and talk about not just that in the context of things in fit and healthy players not just in rehab um and then we obviously published two of them so the, the hamstring case study the tip fracture case study and the last one which is currently under review which is a female athlete coming back from an acl reconstruction who went on to play at the FIFA Women's World Cup in France. Um, and then, yeah, there's another additional piece that will be coming on top of that afterwards, um, just to apply it. So, yeah, there's been a fair... We, we recently put a bit out in Martin Bashay's Open Acts Journal on, like, a, adapting... Obviously, adaptability is crucial in the high-pressurised environment. So how can you adapt the last phase to, obviously, bring back those that concept of player trafficking back and the neurocognitive side back earlier to the player and challenge the player rather than just thinking about the running aspect? Um, yeah, and I suppose, Tom, if you want to jump in before I add future directions, I guess, because obviously you're working on yours as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the reason, um, a big reason for doing it was just to try and highlight the specificity of each individual case. So you may have a hamstring injury for two different players, um, the same ham- type of hamstring injury, but you've got uh, player A's mindset, player B's mindset. You've also got player A's uh, a centre back, player B is a full back. How you condition both of those are completely different. Um, however, if you have a framework in mind, you you still have the same kind of patterns that you go through. Um, and we highlight in in the first one um, different areas we probably look at. Um, so from a, an on on field perspective, and then we've also got um, Dan Cohen involved as well to talk about all the force plate information that you can utilise and um, what you should be looking for through each stage that we go to. Um, but yeah, it was just that there's a lot of people doing similar stuff already, but there was no framework out there. Um, and it's just to help 
people help guide people uh, uh, through that process. Um, and then we've got a few more uh, alongside it. So we've got one like we're still just finalising the um, a way of designing drills around the uh, controls curse continuum. Um, which we've worked with uh, Dan again and, and Sam Wilson, who's uh, one of our SNC coaches at Arsenal, um, just showing how um, utilising the same drill and in, in, in changing certain aspects can um, move you along the continuum. Um, and that's, I think that's one of the next ones that we've got, got in, in the pipeline uh, on that. And then, uh, Tabs, you want to talk through a bit more detail on that for the future? Yeah, so I suppose obviously the other one we've got under review is the, the female ACL one, which is obviously we were I was asked to write a guest piece for the Aspatar Sports Medicine Journal on uh, return to performance after ACL reconstruction. And obviously we added a, an additional return to performance pathway from that. So it's really the ACL case will be an application of the control chaos to an ACL female player. But then obviously, how do you return them back to a level of performance? So that obviously is a, a, an additional piece that we're looking to add to that because obviously it's important that we say that obviously high quality rehabilitation is important, but then like a one size fits all approach doesn't address the huge variability that exists between players, their physical characteristics, and obviously their response to load, which is one thing we know about the load demands we place on these athletes, but we don't always know how they respond to load, which is obviously I think is a big area of where sports science researchers sort of tap into next is the response and the individual response to load. So although we work in a team, there's many different players within a team and they, the way they adapt is very different. Yeah. And then you've also got the, uh, the pressure from the management. So if you've got a cup final and your, your star player needs to go through rehab, you've got to accelerate the process. Um, and we, we touched upon that on a, on a couple of the studies. Um, that is, it has to be a cohesive environment. It, you've got the, the input from the rehab coach, the SNC coach, the sports scientist, uh, the manager, the coaches and the player themselves. Um, it has to be a collective environment of, right okay this is this is the target how do we get to that target um, as safely and, and as diligently as possible um, to get them ready for that for that big game that's definitely been a big step forward in rehab hasn't it recently in that, that cohesive approach and we did the podcast recently with um, Rich Evans and Russ Hitchin um, about the Ben Watson case study um, and that tied in with that that they all had a part to play, but the coach here, the player, the player's a big one as well, isn't it? Like tying the player into the process because if they're not bought into that process, it's really important, isn't it? Yeah, Definitely. yeah. And well done. Go on, mate. I was just going to say their, their mindset's massive. Um, I've worked with players who, um, through a rehab process, you'd imagine would be a five, six-week injury. They'd be back in two weeks because they, they'll put themselves and, and they know that they, they're able to cope with it. Um and likewise, you may have a player who goes slightly slower. Um, and it's just knowing the kind of individual you have uh, at the start of it and, right, okay, how are we going to play it? Do we have to nudge them along softly or do we have to tell them to, to put the brakes on a little bit and to try and protect themselves? Or um, Yeah, and that's where you have to bring everyone's thought processes in, into it because um, what, uh, what I see will be different to what Tabsy sees, to be different to what a psychologist would see, what... The SNC coach would see, um, and everyone has different relationships with the player, um, and that needs to be taken into consideration before you you start the plan yourself. I think that leads on maybe another bit I'm currently working on is currently doing some interviews with um, elite football players on 
what is return to sport after injury, what is it's then what's return to performance and what their perspectives on on coming back after injury. So I'm coming in the process of just transcribing a couple of in, uh, interviews from uh, one elite player, male player, and one elite female player at the minute. So obviously, in, can we move things forward by understand the player's perspective in this and what they feel is important? So we might feel like certain elements of their, obviously, ele- like so many different levels of criteria to get back in using objective data to inform our, our decision-making. But for them, it might be different. So we need to sort of better understand the players' perspectives and also like the cultural backgrounds that these players come from. So they're not always used to the same way that we do things in England, but we have to respect that the way that they're, they've been managed previously when in the, in the countries that they've come from. And obviously use that knowledge to sort of better inform them and give them greater confidence that they are making process and, and, and reducing the risk of injury when they do return. It's got to be so many factors in that as well, isn't it? Like the stage of the career, the age and everything as well. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's multi- like all these things, it's multifactorial. So talk about prediction models, algorithms. I think we need to sort of think about where we were maybe a few years ago, like, collecting information can we be concise with the information we collect do we have confidence in it as well and obviously then collecting multiple bits of information that back up our clinical reasoning to make decisions ultimately the the human practitioner is always going to make the decision um, because it's highly volatile highly variable environment that we work in yeah that's what we our job is to manage the risk and reward Mm. Um, taking all that information uh decide what is important what isn't important and and how best to proceed for that individual and that's exactly what you guys are talking about before in terms of availability isn't it when when they're trying to fit back into a, a way of playing not just being available but being available to do their job yeah yeah and that's that goes on to uh, my doctorate as well trying to be able to do the job so uh, I wrote tabs in because it's the slowest Doctorate ever, isn't it, Tubbs, at the minute? We've, uh... Uh, yeah, it is. I'm trying to accelerate <laughs> that process for you. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so we a lot of time on a laptop. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, it's actually trying to interpret uh, game output. So for years, people started have been reading uh, distances uh, that players have run is, um, from a very basic level. So... I've heard managers previously say if we outrun the opposition, we'll win. Um, unfortunately, football's not as simple as that. Um, and uh, people like Paul Bradley um, and Jack Ada started bringing that together about bringing contextual information into uh, the kind of running. And I think that's a good start. Um, but we just need to probably go into a little bit more depth and speak it to different managers and coaches. Uh, I think we have something that uh, could potentially take it to the next level um, and we've roped in people like so Mikhailo who's a data scientist at Arsenal uh, who can run ridiculous algorithms and, and what have you um, but we, we've got all the data ready um, and all the information and the ideas there we just got to try and write it up and then just got to find the time uh, to get that done um, but yeah that's hopefully something we'll, we'll get out in the near future and um, hopefully um get people thinking about another option uh, for understanding what players do in the game because it's not just the physical that's important, it's also where they run, how they run, um, how does that affect someone else. Um, 
all these different pieces of information need to be to be considered to determine whether that run was worth worth doing because me and Tabsy could go on a football pitch and run all day. We could probably produce some of the highest numbers in in the uh, in the Premier League. Not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe not. But if, if, if we could, um, yeah, I like that better. If yeah, unfortunately, we can't kick a football. We can't score a goal. So that is true. it'd be pointless sticking us on there. But we'll run. We'll run all day. Um, yeah, it's, it's just trying to bring that kind of aspect into it um, and try and encompass everything in, into a, into one. I think it's important because I think it moves forward not just from our point of view from sports scientists it should hopefully transfer to coaches as well coming into the game in the next few years because if, if they've got this great understanding of the, the the physical aspect in relation to their footballing aspect so football intelligence however you want to term it that helps to create better relationships because obviously we're coming from the same angle at things rather than obviously coming at the angle that you've got game A, B, C huge variability in those games player one's more in one game, less in one game, and then it's almost like the interpretation that their fitness has gone down. Which, yeah. yeah. Well, I, there's so many things to influence that, but I think hopefully moving forward, we can talk about these concepts that Tom talked about in terms of like the player using their football intelligence to make space for someone else to obviously break the lines and obviously score a goal because only it's about scoring goals and not conceding goals this game. Mm. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can obviously try to educate people coming forward. It's not just around the quantitative side of, of information, but the qualitative side as well. And I think video is, has an important part to play in this. Yeah. It's something that I saw come up last night and we're recording this a day after the Bayern-Barca uh, game. And people were talking a lot about the distances that, that Bayern Munich covered and that if Barcelona covered more ground, then they would have had a bigger chance. But the flip of that is that, and I think I'm right in saying this, I might be wrong, so if I am, then fair play. But when Barcelona were winning Champions Leagues, they still weren't covering that much ground. They were just very efficient about what they did. So like you, you're saying, it's context is absolutely crucial, isn't it? It's all well and good that they, they won last night and they covered that, that amount of ground last night, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it would make them win the next game. Yeah. yeah, and then this also comes down to tactical style. If you're a team who wants to sit back and defend and then hit people on the counter, you're going to produce different outputs to someone who wants to press and, and pressure teams and or play a, a, a high-pressure game. Um, that has to be taken into consideration. Um, like there was... Uh, I remember someone at Villa had spoken to me about it and saying, oh, we needed uh, we needed to run more because that's how uh, teams win leagues because you, you higher outputs. It actually turned out that your top three teams were, uh, that um, finished in the top three positions that year were actually one of the lowest, and the three teams that went went down were actually one of the highest outputs. Um, mm. it's, it's all it's based on a numerous uh, amount of factors, and just to say that. Uh, what we run is a very simplistic way of looking at a far more complex game. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. We'll move it on then. So we'll go on to um, a topic we said we we're going to cover, which is maximising football fitness. And what I wanted to talk about on this is, I would say the current time, but it's completely different for everyone at the moment. Off-season, pre-season, in-season, end-of-season, we don't know where we're at, but... If we start at like the off-season and pre-season, because a lot of coaches are going into that period, what I wanted to ask you, Ads, is what are some 
um, non-negotiables that you're focusing on in that time? And what, what's your general sort of focus in that period to maximise football fitness for the season ahead? Yeah. Um, so first one would be rest. Uh, so you've come off a, a big season, um, especially this season. We've had a heavy fixture congestion in a shorter period. Um, you've also had different life stresses on, on the boys. It, it's right. Chill out for the first bit. Uh, relax, but be aware we're going to have to work when we, when we get back. Um, and that's the same for any pre-season. Um, this one's a, a shorter pre-season, so you've got to accelerate a little bit. But any pre-season, it's enjoy the rest. Initially, build up um, into some lighter activities to stay moving around. Um, but then we go and we, we give them a, 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 a gym plan and a running plan uh, to get them ready. Um, now, for me, the off-season is key. Um, that's where you can gain your advantage because you can bring the boys back in, in a better condition um, than if they just did a general, their own running plan. Um I think that the running plan you, you devise has to be done in the, the vision of the management. So however they, their style of play is uh, will determine your key focuses. Um, so um, we need to start building that in as early as we can. Um, so I'm not a big fan of running on treadmills um, purely because I, th- I think that's very far away from from what we do on a football pitch. Um, you need to bring in those those change of directions, um, the changing of speed, because that's primarily what football is. Um, being able to, to press the opposition, decelerate and then chase the ball down. Um, and everything we design is around that. Um, we have a great team of people at Arsenal that we all come together, um, get the ideas from the physios, um, the rehab, um, the rehab guys who have been working with people who are just coming back from injury, uh, the SNC guys about right, what's the weaknesses that we need to try and uh, work on because you have a, a, a period of time before they come in that we can start getting them going again, um, and it's just ramping them up to an area where you feel like you can kick off, uh, kick off on. Um, so we always have a, a testing day on on their return. Um, and with that in mind, we'll have, right, okay, um, we have to get this many sessions in so many days. And there may be players who we feel were further behind than others when, when we left. So, for example, in this, in this situation, any players who haven't been exposed to a lot of game time, they'll probably be slightly further behind than those who've played every game. Um, so you may have to make slight adjustments for them. And then you've also got the boys who are returning from injury, Right, we have to take into consideration what their current status is, um, where they are in their, their rehabilitation plan, and how we're going to bring um, them into uh, a period of um, being able to train in the squad at the intensity we expect them to, uh, to work at. Um, and then within those running programs, I would focus on primarily the intensity of those runs. Um, so they will be hard. Um, we'll build the volume up to an acceptable standard to where we need them to be at come uh, week one for pre- pre-season. Um, and then you just take into uh, account some of the players. So for the, the COVID 
um, time we actually took some of the consideration of the players as well and said, where do you think uh, uh, we need to be uh, and how do we do it? Um, and they understood the, uh, the the need to do more specific intermittent running. Um, so we know that within one to two weeks, people will start detraining uh, and research shows that those one to two weeks could take three to four weeks to get back to that level. Um, so we need to start building that volume, building that intensity in as early as we can and make it specific to what we're doing. Um, I don't know if you've got anything else to add for off-season. No, really, like all the things I would probably echo that you said just around, obviously, what are you building in? What are your, what are the important ways that you train a footballer? Like think about the energy system demands of football or what are the technical and tactical demands that are required on a footballer and then make conceptual goals for your, pre, pre, for your pre-season plan that based around those obviously elements so you have got a really good a structural way of looking at how you prepare someone for pre-season so we know predominantly football is a, a, a aerobic lactic sport so obviously we've got a condition build someone's aerobic base up by building like so Tom said intensity and, and volume into that and obviously then taper into the, the, the first few weeks weeks of the season and obviously knowing that players aren't going to be match fit until maybe three to, three to five games into that season and obviously with the the predicament that we're in this year where you've obviously got an international uh, commitment I think Tom is in it the third, the, the third week where obviously yeah, pre-season, yeah. be a challenge where teams are going to have to communicate with the, with the international colleagues to obviously make sure that the players are reaching the goals that the, the clubs have, at, have assigned for the, for, the, for, the, for the team and the players because um, obviously you, you are managing risk there um, so that would be a crucial thing and I think Something that we've seen when I, me and obviously I work with Dan on sort of scout uh, movement on data, we've, we've, we've probably got a data set where no one has, where we've got in a South American team pre and post COVID count movement jump testing data, uh, where obviously we've got it pre lockdown and then quarantine training and then post lockdown. And we saw some interesting changes in certain elements of the count movement phase that would suggest that the the lack of exposure to the, the football, the traffic, the cognitive side is something that has to be dripped back in gradually with these players. Um, because obviously that can promote things, increase sympathetic response, heart rate goes up because obviously the running load might be the same, but they've got the player interaction that increases the internal demand on the player. So these things to think about where obviously elements of control to chaos might apply to the fit and healthy players in a pre-season scenario. So you build up the running loads and you slowly grab in the cognitive cognitive side into obviously your football specific working media your coaching team yeah and that's that's a key one for me so when I worked with Steve Bruce Steve Bruce was the first manager I'd worked with who wanted a, a pre-pre-season um, so we got probably 10-12 players in in together um, and then brought into that that stimulus of having uh, that trafficking effect of other players around them um, and that was probably the first exposure where I was like, right, you can really make uh, big gains here um, if we if we do this right. Because um, then you're just bridging the gap. So that you have the gap from if you run on a treadmill to playing a game and you're just trying to shorten that gap. So how close can we get that, uh, that stimulus to be like a game? Uh, and there's different things you can add in um, to try and... and bring that stimulus in. So it's, it was hard during COVID. So when you're training on your own, you can't get that trafficking effect. You're trying to create, create visual stimuluses other ways. So because we could do like a, 
uh, like have players on different pitches, but you could have like a, a coach out there. You could shout colours if need be. You could uh, create a scenario where a ball bounces off a backboard. That's where they go. Or um, you just create different stimuluses that they have to react to. Um, uh, You're just, just using that, that constraints, constraints model in it again, yeah. Tom, with a fit and healthy player. How can you adapt the, both the, the task and the environmental constraints to cater that training environment for that player for the for the for the, the demands and the needs that you require? Yeah, and that's the the first step you have have to think is how do I get them as close to that game as possible? Um, and the, the the closer you can get, it'll be the easier to get them get them ready. And a little spin off to that because I've already seen it on social media already with some clubs. Um, in like a pre-season period now. So some are running sand dunes, some are out at army barracks and uh, doing team bike rides or whatever it is. So what are you, because I know people have a lot of different views on this. Some people think it's needed. Some people think that it's not. Like, what are your views on that? Where does that fit into a programme or? I, I think like you could obviously, like this, you're going to get, the players are going to adapt regardless of what stimulus you throw at these players. And it comes down to, each club will condition their players to the way they think it's suitable for the way that their team wants to play and train. And that's only what it comes down to. So you could have opinion around these ways that different, like you said, sand dunes, mountain biking, cross training, whatever it may be, but you're going to get certain adaptions. Um, from my point of view, I think still I would push towards a football-specific training approach where you embed in some focused running drills as well. Um, and I think, yeah, that's the, the approach I would use. You see, I don't mind that if it's a, a psychological thing. So I worked with a manager one year who felt that um, the team needed to be mentally tougher. Um, so one of the things was similar to that. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, he called it the gaffer's day. Um, and it was basically running until mentally you felt, gosh, this is hard. Um, and to be fair, there's a bond that's created uh, within that. Like trying to pull each other through it, um, and like there are times for it, but uh, like Tab said, I'd, I would push for more of a, a, a football-specific model. Um, but I do feel that again, you have to adapt your your protocols to to suit uh, the management style, what the the manager feels is required. Because um, at the end of the day, we're support staff to them. Uh, and at the end of the day, all they want is fitter players who are able to do the job that they're required. Um, and our role as support staff is to try and and build their vision uh, within the science that we understand. I think yeah, that term, I suppose, capacity comes down to is one that probably isn't used quite as much anymore, but it's maybe coming back into the way that we think about training players. How can we push their capacities? Because obviously it's not just about capacity to cope with certain things but it's to be able to recover as well which where capacity, training capacities is important for recovery of high intensity qualities and it comes down to the underlying principles of the way you want to train and the adaptations that you want from that normally and which is where understanding the science and applying that science practically is very important yeah. obviously as well like Tom said that you work in a team it's not just a sports scientist who dictates all it's around working with the coaching staff obviously getting across the key elements they want and then you advising that based on your knowledge around scientific adaptations to training for football players. Yeah. And what you tend to find is that with footballers, they're elite athletes and they can probably cope with a hell of a lot of stuff. So when I first came into Arsenal, um, I remember 
some of the outputs that we do ridiculously high. Um, and like these are, you see, uh, physical monsters able to just keep going and going. And it's like that's where I saw it. These guys can take a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, a lot of punishment on the pitch, and it's it's amazing how um, how hard you can actually push them. Um, I do feel there's there is a a worry that you if you're the sports scientist and you see oh no the the loads are going really high. Um, how are these people going to react? And then it comes down to the individual themselves. So, for instance, I've worked with players who you could throw so much load into them. You could have seven seven or eight games game load in a week and they're fine they just keep powering on through uh, and then you have a player who goes over a threshold of three or four games suddenly he's dead um, that's where you have to know the individual and um, don't be afraid to push them um, but be aware of what the warning signs for that individual are so is there something that uh, if a player starts saying certain things in when you're talking to him in the morning, is that an alarm signal? And this knowing, I guess, like me and Tubbsy talk about it loads, the signal within the noise, that you need to find those signals. Um, every player has a different signal. No one's the same. It's understanding that there's individual differences um, and just finding what makes them tick is important. I think, yeah, I think you said it all like, you can collect data that can inform you, you can do your your pre-season strength assessments that are probably based around typical injuries that are there from the science in football, where it be hip, hip injuries, groin that are common in pre-season from repeated passing and tackling. And obviously, obviously you can look at hamstring strength as well. That's obviously probably a certain risk factor, maybe, may not in some individuals that might help you inform potentially what might be a risk for a certain player that will narrow your signal to noise, what you're looking at for that particular player. Only then you the communication is is critical. You've got to talk to these players, and, and the more the relationship you develop with these players, the more honest and open they're going to be, which can only help you communicate with the management management staff. But obviously, as a team, create a team that's open and honest together. I think that's crucial. Like communication is 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 vital in, in this environment. Doing the simple things well and communicating, I would say, are vital. And how easy have you guys found it in terms of getting around that group of players and creating relationships? Because you've got you've got a good amount of players there you, that you're working with. So noticing these signals from every individual has got to be tough in terms of there's only so many hours in the day, isn't there? Then it comes down to just being a human being. Hmm. It's like you go in the pub and say you go uh, to chat to one of your mates invites you to people you never met before. You can then create relationships. You can uh, build rapport with different people that you've never met. Uh, everyone's capable of doing it. And that's where um, I do think, you know, when you're younger and you do jobs like working on the bar and uh, working in retail, things like that are, are massive. Learning how to, to chat to different people. Like when when I worked on the bar, it's it's you learn a lot from trying to calm down a drunk person. Um that gives you a, a skill set that uh, will help you later on in life. Um, so yeah, there's that's what it all comes down to is finding that that um, that connection with each individual. Um, just chatting to them about their family, seeing what their interests are, and look, you're going to get on better with some people 
more than others, but it's always having uh, to make sure that the players understand that you're there to help them. Um, we're not there to to punish them. We're not there to um, to tell people oh this player's not doing that. It's we're here to help them be in an optimal condition to win a football game, and that's what our job is. You got anything else on that, Matt? No, I think I think Tom said it like, like it is. I think you just obviously be adaptable to different like when you work with players like the nationalities that you work in these teams now, sometimes it could be challenging, especially when some players don't speak much English at all. Mm-hmm. Um, can be really challenging. Where I think sometimes when you've got players who come in, they don't speak much English and obviously clubs have wellness apps where you can obviously report sleep, uh, fatigue, soreness, etc. add any comments, which sometimes can give, give you a bit of information before they even enter the building to create sort of how should I approach that? It's the same way you approach someone who's had an injury. You don't want to be keep ramming down their throat. How's your knee today? How's your ankle today? Where they know they've had an injury. Mm. You want to drive your training and your approach to speaking with them the way that's going to give them confidence that they're coming back from that. And I think it's the same way you approach any player. It's approach it well that you're not focusing on the, the problematic area, but trying to bring them to speak about it if they've got a problem. I mean, they might flag something on the wellness, say my knee's a little bit stiff this morning conversation if they don't mention it to you it's probably not an issue but then obviously if they do communication with the physio team who can check that player and assess before obviously decisions can be made for who's training that day so I think it's important the communication is vital but you can have obviously to collect information that supports that conversation and where, you, where your head may be first thing when you when the people come into the, the canteens have the breakfast who do I need to speak to first etc so forth and then I suppose it's knowing the personalities of the people in your team. Some, some members of staff might get on with other players better than you. So it's knowing that you might have a group of five or six that you approach and then there's another member of staff who approaches another five or six. You can soon round up this information quicker in a more, in a more feasible manner. Yeah, definitely. Something that Colin Lewin touched on actually in his episode, he, he said that and that was something he said. But um, moving on to the pre-season period, something that's, highly spoke about a lot with coaches and the press as well love a pre-season period don't they love jumping over what clubs have been up to and then judging clubs and I can't remember who mentioned it before but those first few results of the season like people are talking about that that basically like it defines the season and it's a it's a really tough one isn't it because Tom just won an FA Cup. Like that's that's the important game. I had that's nothing Tom. to do with that. I, had, I couldn't <laughs> score a goal, so it's nothing to do with me. <laughs> been involved, been involved. But um, that's the crunch end of the season, isn't it? Like so, this preseason period. What what are your main focuses? What do you want to see at that first game? What are some things in your roles that you want to um, have come out of that period? Tom, do you want to go first because you're in a role at the minute? Um, so yeah when you do pre-season you need to understand what the outcome is Um, so I think most managers will go down the route like we need to maximise physical performance Uh, we want to reduce injury risks of building physical robustness uh, however you want to determine it Um, and then at the end of the day on, on game day one you want the manager to feel that he is able to pick every single player to do the job that he wants them to do um, so 
like I mentioned, come day one preseason, you're testing them, see where they're at, what are the weaknesses we feel that they they require, what's the weaknesses that the player themselves feel like they need to improve on. Uh, and then also the coaching staff. So how do they look in that first week? Is there something that we need to work on from a physical perspective that the coach feels they're unable to do? Um, and that's where you probably need to delve into a bit more detail because the manager might say to you, oh, he needs to work on his speed. Okay, is it the speed from his reaction from when he loses the ball? Is it the the first five yards? Is it his max speed? And it's just trying to tease out the information that they uh, they feel they need to um, look and work up, work uh, into more depth. Um, so yeah, you have all that in your plan. You then right, okay, how do we just from the first week based on what the all that bit of information we have in, um, and then you have to decide who's from the testing, from what the manager thinks, what the players think, who's behind, who's ahead of what they, they are. And you don't want to have a situation where you're you're getting those who are behind to catch up with the, the boys who are ahead because otherwise you're stopping the ceiling of the guys who are ahead. So we're trying to get everyone to move up, but the boys who are behind you to go up at a quicker rate. Um, and that's where you use the data uh, that you're collecting and you have to make an informed decision of when you can push, when you can't push um, and adapt around that. Um, Knowing what you need to push as well, isn't it, Tom? Yes, yeah. Uh, what, what, obviously, we're measuring this in terms of running load and then obviously the internal response to that, but it's knowing where they may be falling behind and knowing, obviously, if some players aren't involved, say, in a game and obviously players might have a, a respite day the next day, what, what do we need to then focus our top-up conditioning for for these players and so forth? So it's giving you sort of direction of where you need to go for these players week to week where they're falling behind and what's the target I suppose it's looking what's the like we've termed it like multiple game loads like what, what are we preparing the player for what they need to cope with relative to obviously the, the team how we want to play and train and obviously with the demands of when they go into season so obviously yeah. that's giving you then some co- level of confidence this is what they normally do typically this is what we are and obviously working with different managers when you have a new manager coming in pre-season it can be different you can get huge variability from the previous season so we have to prepare them to a new level beyond this capacity. So it's, un- it's understanding all these different considerations that we take into account and obviously planning around and communicate and knowing that it's going to be quite week to week in pre-season. You can have a, a plan goal, an expectation that you want to work to, but something that, that could be variability between that because the plans can change daily for various reasons. Yeah, and that's where you need to be adaptable and uh, understand, again, what is the, the important information we need to to act upon um, yeah and yeah like, like Tab said it's uh, it's just uh, bringing all that information to know what is, is I mean I suppose when you're talking around does the manager wants to know his players are fit I suppose you can go around the way of like aerobic testing if you want to test where they are what's their heart rate response to where it was pre-season to when they're coming towards the end is it a lower maximal heart rate at the same intensity uh, do they have a shorter heart rate recovery, say one or two minutes post? It, it depends on what's your structure for monitoring your, your, tra- your responses to training in your, in your player squad, which obviously, again, is variable to the manager and the staff that he has. Yeah, but I bet you've had this as well, Tabs. I've had players who, if you took their data, physically have improved, but the manager says uh, they've not improved because... Yeah. I think thought- that, that's that thing of fitness mar- getting masked by fatigue sometimes. Yeah. When they push the capacity so high that 
obviously you talk about adaptation syndromes, et cetera, and fitness fatigue model that we know that we push certain capacities, they can take longer to adapt. And obviously you don't get adequate recovery. And like Tom said, rest, which sometimes is probably maybe neglected now, some somewhat that element of rest or of his active recovery, whatever it may be, that is sometimes required to see the benefits of the training stimulus that you've had on these players. Yeah, and that's where, go on that fatigue uh, element, I would always work them under fatigue, especially with a ball, because how you react when you're tired is massively different to how you are fresh. Um, and I've seen people have the best plans in the world, but they don't work under fatigue. And when the players become tired, they start making mistakes. And the manager needs to know that they're, um, that they're able to cope under pressure when they're tired. Because when it comes to that 85th minute and you're, you're needing to score a winner, you need to make sure you're on, on point with everything you're doing. Um, and then that comes back to then trying to, to do that work in the manager's model. So, for instance, um, working with a manager who's very much focused on using the ball, anything we do under fatigue, right, within his game principles, how do we in, in, include that um, to work them at that level and be sure that when it comes to game day that we, we check that off um, make sure that they're able to cope with it. Because I don't want to be sat on, on the bench on the 85th minute where the manager's looking at you and going, well, why do they look like this? Um, we're trying yeah, to- I think as well, maybe like somewhat, I've seen on my, that the training speed endurance qualities are somewhat lost out sometimes now with, with yeah. healthy players, which is a given for us in rehab because we know it's important. Obviously training players in a state of fatigue and obviously speed in a state of fatigue and associated risk of hamstring strain injury and so forth. But I think this sort of last start in speed endurance training or repeated pressing qualities in the state of fatigue now uh, are highly crucial to success. And obviously the video data to capture where these moments are happening and using the communication with the coaching staff to create drill scenarios that put that into practice. And it's sometimes it's, I think these are things where you've got so many coaches now at these high level clubs, it's maybe split into units where players can link together and create these at the end of session. So you're getting these speed endurance training stimulus. It's not like pushing the boundaries far, but it's getting those qualities work, which have got specific adaptations beyond those of aerobic training alone. Which I think, yeah, some of the Danish work maybe by uh, Bangsbo and Krustrup has obviously maybe been forgotten, but it's crucial. Yeah, I was going to ask as well, where you said about the test in, compa- um, um, in comparison to the game, is that something you've seen with speed as well so if you see players improve their speed in say a, a sprint test or something like that but then the manager or the coach doesn't necessarily think they're improving on the pitch is that something you've seen as well because there's obviously a lot of different things that come into that isn't there it's not just a case of straight line running through some timing gates yeah yeah I, I think the speed element I think um, some of Paul, Paul Colbeck's work at uh, LJMU around the contextual sprinting is really interesting when you look at the different ways that sprints are initiated from not typically from a static start they might be going into a, a change direction and then the transition through phase of the play that they occur in different areas of the pitch they occur in I think is really important information which in rehab is a, is an, a brilliant tool to have uh, but I think for the teams that it could be used more wisely to condition players more specifically for the demands that they're going to face um, so I think, yes, maybe we can about take some of this research now that's coming out that's highly practical for us to use as practitioners in our, in our field. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we need to um, 
definitely need to do it within within the game environment. Uh, and that's where again comes to communication and speaking to the manager. What is what do we feel that they're uh, neglecting in 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 the uh, in the game itself? Um, uh, and then goes back to is it the initial reaction to something? So is it because they they've done their off season on their own? They don't have that traffic in effect, so they don't react to the stimuluses as quickly as what they would do normally. Uh, uh, and these things need to be considered. Planning. You referred to there about obviously like sprint speed, maximal sprint speed, and those sort of things. Obviously, some some managers may want you to do sprint testing, speed gates, or whatever. But yeah, typically, probably not. Like I've not been with managers that have allowed you to do that type of sort of testing with their players. And so, typically, maximal speeds are taken from training scenarios mm. um, or maybe rolling start efforts, so forth, where the, the obviously the, the value is taken from the, the global position system unit, and obviously. That comes down then to checking the, the speed profiles for any irregularities that might exist. And secondly, the, the satellite quality as well and when you're taking maximal speed. So there's things to consider from a, a technical level as well when you're looking at speed data. And I, th- I can't remember whether we were recording or not when you had the discussion about hitting maximal speeds in, in games. I don't think we were, were we? So if we, no, could, no. if we could cover that as well, I think that would be um, a good sort of expansion on this topic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we were talking earlier about uh, in games, not every player will be required to do a max speed. So I've had players, if we just went off their game data, they probably not hit a plus eighty five percent for ten games in a row. Um, and that comes down to what the game requires you to do. Um, so don't assume that a player will will hit a max speed in a game because um, there are certain positions. So for instance, if you have a defensive midfielder who is asked to sit and hold a certain area, it's very unlikely he's going to be required to do that max speed effort unless he's having to chase someone down as a last man. Um, there are the positions that are probably more likely to get it. Um, so like a, a striker or one of your wide players is more likely to get a max speed um, than some of the other players. Um, that's where the exposure in the week is important. Um, so it's trying to find a, a moment to do it um, that fits your model um, of your training week. And uh, it's, for me, and there's research, um, there's loads of research out there, one shame alone about the number of times that you, you need to hit a max speed effort over a certain amount of days. Um, I'd be looking at at least once a week trying to get um, players to hit a, a plus 90%. And I know that some people will have a cutoff of plus 95%. Um, but have that exposure because once they've done it in training, you can be sure that they, they can do it when required in the game. Yeah, I think I'd add to that. I think people have probably seen Martin Bechet's recent publication in Science and Medicine and Football. And I think, yeah, very practical looking through a season in terms of like different percentage of maximal sprint speed, 80 90 and above 90% of maximum speed, how many efforts within they do that and what are the distances they will cover doing that. And I think doing that, obviously that's specific to Paris Saint-Germain where it was obviously conducted, but then it's knowing that that study is important for them within anyone within their own environment, looking at their data set and what are their players doing within each position, not just going, okay, this was done at a French team in in Ligue 1. It's what, what do our players do in the Premier League or Serie A? 
So big thank you to listening to part one of episode 100. Like I said at the start, this episode is split into two parts. So part two will be released on Wednesday this week. And in part two, we go on to cover periodization and the lads' views on periodization, what factors need to be flexible within a periodization model throughout a busy season. We talk about using data to have the greatest impact on performance And then we go into detail on the transition from under 16 to under 18 and then through onto first team as well. So loads of information in part two of the podcast. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Like I said, like I said at the start, this episode for me was absolutely quality and lived up to the um, hype around the episode 100. So big thank you to Tom and Matt and we will speak to you on Wednesday for part two of episode 100.